Welcome, I'm Rose Aguilar, and this is your call. Today we continue our series on the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II by marking Fred Korematsu Day, which is celebrated on Fred's birthday. Who was Fred Korematsu and why was he the first Asian American to have a statewide day named for him? Fred Korematsu was born on January 30th, 1919 in Oakland. His parents, who had immigrated from Japan, ran a flower nursery. Fred Korematsu tried to join the Coast Guard when the U.S. entered World War II, but was turned away because of his race. He then trained to become a welder. Japan bombed Pearl Harbor in December 1941, and President Roosevelt signed Executive Order 9066 on February 19, 1942. The order did not name a specific ethnic group. It was Lieutenant General John DeWitt of the Western Defense Command who issued exclusion orders from the Presidio in San Francisco that included only Japanese Americans. Under the authority of Roosevelt's executive order, DeWitt issued Public Proclamation No. 4, which began the forced evacuation and detention of Japanese-American West Coast residents on a 48-hour notice. As a result, 122,000 men, women, and children of Japanese descent were forced into so-called assembly centers, which were often old horse stables. They were then evacuated to, quote, relocation centers, also known as internment camps, essentially prisons. Nearly 70,000 of the evacuees were U.S. citizens. At age 23, Fred Korematsu defied the order. He even tried to disguise himself. He was arrested, then convicted, and imprisoned with his family at the Topaz internment camp in Utah. The ACLU asked Fred Korematsu if he would become a test case to challenge the internment. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and in 1944, the court ruled in favor of the military, justifying the internment as a necessity. Well, decades later, after proof surfaced that the U.S. government had made false statements, a team of attorneys, including one of today's guests, appealed Fred Korematsu's conviction. On November 10, 1983, the U.S. District Court in San Francisco formally vacated Fred Korematsu's conviction. In 2011, the Justice Department issued a formal confession of error in the Korematsu case, acknowledging that government lawyers misled the court about the security threat. Don Tamaki is a Bay Area-based attorney who was part of the team that overturned Fred Korematsu's 40-year conviction. While he was working on the case, Don Tamaki's parents, who were forcibly incarcerated in Topaz, Utah, were part of a movement to demand reparations for what they endured. In 1988, a decade after the campaign began, Ronald Reagan signed the Civil Liberties Act, which offered a formal apology and $20,000 to each survivor. Don Tamaki is today a board member of Stop Repeating History, an organization that highlights the importance of political engagement and how we can all take action against hate. Hi, Don. Thanks so much for joining us again. Oh, we're going to get Don in just a minute. We're also joined today by Courtney Piegler, Vice President and Director of Education at the Korematsu Institute, a national education advocacy organization committed to promoting civic participation and education to advance racial equity, social justice, and human rights for all. A descendant of Japanese Americans forced to leave the West Coast, Courtney Piegler is committed to ensuring the shameful history of the World War II incarceration is not forgotten and that its lessons are applied to the fight for social Social justice for all. Hi, Courtney. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Rose, so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you, Courtney. You know, we've been doing a series about Japanese internment for about three years now. And the Fred Korematsu Day, I think, is so important because it brings up so many issues. To think that Fred was only 23 when he defied these orders, to just sit with that for a moment. I just wonder, how, how do you reflect, given what happened to your family on a day like this? Absolutely. Yeah, thank you for that opportunity to speak about Fred Korematsu Day of Civil Liberties and the Constitution. Um, and, and also thank you for all of the work that you have been doing on these shows. I've listened to many of them and uh, really appreciated it. Um, 
I think that on this day in particular, um, it, it's a day to honor and remember Fred Kulanoff, who, um, you know, specifically, but really to remember this history about the Japanese American incarceration during World War II. And as a reminder of, you know, standing up for our civil, civil liberties, excuse me, civil liberties on the Constitution. That's really the full name of the day, and that's what it represents. Um, standing up for our democracy and speaking out when we see injustice and, you know, taking a stand for what is right. That's what Fred did. As you said, it's particularly notable that he was only 23 years old when he did this. Um, and I think that what is so remarkable about his story or what, what makes his story so compelling for me and so many others is that he really was an ordinary guy. You know, he, um, he was 23 years old. He stayed because he was in love. He wanted to stay with his girlfriend. Um, he had studied the Constitution in high school and knew his rights as an American citizen and knew that this was wrong, what the government had done. Um, and he, you know, he took that risk to stay and to defy those orders. Um, and he didn't do it in any, you know, big flashy way. He wasn't making a point, so to speak, at the time. Um, but when he was given that opportunity to stand up and say something and to be a test case for the ACLU, he took that opportunity um, because he knew that it was about more than just himself. Um, and I agree, sitting with that for a moment, uh, reflecting on a 23-year-old, you know, taking that stand is quite impressive. It, it really is, because, I, Courtney, I'm so struck by the photos from that time. Every, almost everyone in the photo is so nicely dressed, and they have a suitcase with them, or, or, or just a bag with them, and then they're forced to go into a fairly dirty area, and, and you just you kind of think, what was that like? And for Fred to have the courage to say, I'm not taking part in this is, is really incredible. I, I agree completely. Um, the, the living conditions and the places where they were sent, um, you know, Karen, Fred's daughter, Dr. Karen Koromatsu, really emphasizes, and, and I agree that it, to really highlight the inhumane conditions that um, our relatives were um, subjected to, my family was in the East Bay during the, uh, before the war. They were forced to move to the racetrack in Tamparan as Fred's family and uh, Don's family as well were there. Um, and then followed by the concentration camp in central Utah in Topaz. Um, I, I learned about this in high school. Um, as many other Japanese Americans experienced, my family didn't speak about it. Um, my grandparents were Nisei, second generation, um, and they had moved on. Um, when I learned about it, I remember in high school uh, doing my term paper, actually, on the, the Quorum Nobis cases. <laughs> That's where I first learned about Fred wow. and Gordon Hirabayashi and Min Yasui. And I remember watching a documentary on Topaz and just crying, thinking about what my family was was forced to do and where they were forced to live and uh, not having heard from them directly about it, just having to imagine them experiencing that uh, was incredibly emotional for me. Courtney Pegler is Vice President and Director of Education at the Korematsu Institute. Her family was forced to leave the West Coast. She's a descendant of Japanese Americans. And she says, like so many of the guests who've been on our show about this, their families just, they they didn't talk about it. In fact, we've had some guests on the show who talked about it for the very first time, which is really, really incredible. Don Tamaki is a Bay Area-based attorney who was part of the team that overturned Fred Korematsu's 40-year conviction. And I think we have Don on the line now. Hi, Don. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you, Rose, for uh, allowing me to be on. Well, Don, it's always great to have you on. And, and I just wonder, Don, looking back at your experience to be on that team that overturned Fred's conviction, how, how do you reflect on Fred Korematsu Day? Well, <clears throat> the regrettable thing is probably Korematsu is more relevant today than it was when we reopened the case uh, in the 1980s. Uh, we're living at a time 
uh, when demagoguery is surging, not only worldwide, but certainly here in the United States. And um, we have experienced, uh, you know, attack uh, on the Capitol, January 6, 2021, when at least two branches of government failed, that is to say the executive branch and the uh, legislative branch, uh, essentially both of which have taken steps to invalidate a valid election. And if it wasn't for the judiciary, you know, we and a, and a few state leaders upholding democracy, we we would be in a very different place today. And so the Korematsu case um, is really a, an example where all three branches of government failed: the legislative branch, the uh, executive branch, and the judicial branch uh, spectacularly failed to upheld the principle of democracy. And so. Looking back on the Korematsu case, we can actually learn a lot from it. Don, given that you are a longtime attorney who focuses on civil rights, what are your thoughts about today's court system and, and, and the power of judges today? Because so many people who are talking about this moment and where we are say that the legal system is basically needs to be strong uh, to ensure that when lawsuits are filed, for example, uh, you, you know, we'll get some sort of conviction. It, I just wonder what your thoughts are about the rule of law at a time like this. Well, in the Korematsu case, uh, it, it's an example where uh, demagoguery uh, took over, where facts didn't matter, uh, the Constitution de- doesn't, didn't matter, uh, the law didn't matter. And when Korematsu uh, refused to comply with the uh, orders to report to a concentration camp, the army at that time defended against his legal challenge by saying Japanese Americans were spies and saboteurs. And on that basis, uh, they um, brought this case, they defended the case against the U.S. Supreme Court. In 1944, as you recited, uh, Fred lost. And uh, the, essential, the court essentially reasoned if a military commander tells us that mass incarceration makes the nation safer, then we believe him. Uh, 37 years later, uh, researchers accidentally, Peter Irons and Heiko Yoshinaga Hertze, accidentally discovered uh, secret FBI, Navy, and FCC intelligence reports, all of which said, that the army was lying, that there was no reason for the mass roundup, and um, the army was engaging in, quote, intentional falsehoods. And there are memos going back and forth between Justice Department lawyers who had called up these reports expecting uh, these reports to corroborate the claims of DeWitt that Japanese Americans were engaging in espionage. And to their shock and alarm, they found exactly the opposite that uh, Japanese Americans had done, done no wrong and there was no reason for this mass removal. So these lawyers essentially turned into whistleblowers and they began to write memos to the Assistant Attorney General of the United States, number two person, the Solicitor General um, of the United States, Charles Fahey. Um, that uh, officer uh, argues all cases in defense of the government before the U.S. Supreme Court. And the memos urged um, the uh, higher-ups that they had a duty not to lie to the court, not to lead court, not to mislead the court, and to t- disclose the contents of their own intelligence agency reports. And they were ignored. Uh, the Solicitor General um, exhorted the court uh, to uphold the mass roundup of Japanese Americans, and knowing that um, every intelligence agency had debunked the Army's claims and there was no factual basis for it. Uh, in one case, uh, even one of the key reports were ordered burned. So these, um, this evidence was suppressed, altered, and in some cases destroyed. And it was, you know, it's a lesson basically um, about how fragile uh, democracy is. And my parents, um, they had thought that their 
their roundup was the product of wartime hysteria. And they were shocked to learn. Um, it, uh, it was a mind-blowing revelation, really, to find out that at our highest um, levels of the legal system, the, the very top uh, of the U.S. Uh, justice system, that a plan uh, to engage in the intentional suppression of evidence had occurred, um, even if it meant uh, lying to the Supreme Court in order to manipulate the outcome of the Cormonson case. And that's a very different, um, you know, situation from someone who had made a mistake or a wartime hysteria that had taken over uh, when, when it was essentially a plan to subvert uh, the judicial branch. And, <clears throat> again, it, it's really a textbook example on the meaning of the Constitution and uh, what happens when all three branches have failed. failed. And uh, as a result, the Korematsu case has long been remembered as a civil liberties disaster. Um, fast forward to now, of course, we're living at a time when all three branches of government are challenged. Literally millions now believe that the election was stolen. And uh, demagoguery, which has a playbook of basically three elements, uh, which are appeal, appeal to prejudice, uh, engage in fear-mongering and scapegoating, and traffic in alternative facts and conspiracy theories. Uh, when those become dominant, as they did in 1942, History tells us that society can descend into a very dark place where the facts don't matter, the law doesn't matter, and the Constitution doesn't matter. And so I'm very pleased that you are looking into the Korematsu case for this um, episode because it is so relevant today, and we can learn a lot from it. Right. Courtney, can you elaborate on that a bit? What are your thoughts about what we can learn from the Korematsu case at a time when, you know, we just we have to talk about this. Um, the, the, the Republican candidate for president is most likely going to be Donald Trump. And in an interview with Glenn Beck back in August, he says he will lock up his political enemies if he if he wins again. So what are your thoughts about what, what we can learn from the Korematsu case based on what we're dealing with today? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think um, not only what we learned from the case, and I think that, you know, Don did an incredible job of laying that out for us as well. And um, I think, you know, in that pointing out that this did happen, the government did lie to the Supreme Court, um, that it was, you know, there was evidence revealing this directly that this happened. And we can't Take that lightly. We have to learn from that that this has happened and that it can happen again. Um, Fred's story, I think, you know, it, as Don also underscored, this, and as I said before, Fred Korematsu Day is really about knowing our civil liberties, knowing the rights that we have, um, knowing the Constitution, and standing up for that, and and individuals speaking up against it. So the story of Fred um, and his case is not just the, the lessons that we learned that the government can and has lied to the Supreme Court in previous cases, um, but that we as individual citizens have a voice and we have the ability to speak up and to speak out against these injustices when we see them happening. And sometimes we forget that and um, sometimes we need that reminder. Um, and it can take different forms. You know, uh, as I said, it's not that Fred went out and started organizing and trying to get others on board with uh, a plan to stand up against the orders. Um, he sort of went about it his way and defied the orders personally. And then when given the opportunity to be a test case, he said yes, and he agreed to it. Um, even though he faced backlash from his own community and his own family, he stood by that bravely, knowing that the government was wrong. Um, Unfortunately, he didn't have the ability at the time to know that the government had lied directly to the Supreme Court, um, but he knew that what the government had done was wrong, and he stood by that. And so 
learning from his story, learning from his case, it is really about the power of individuals to speak up. Um, as his daughter Karen says, you know, Fred was one man who made a difference in the face of adversity, and so can you. And that's really uh, the key lesson that we like to um, get out there for, uh, you know, particularly for students, educators, the public, that you can make a difference and you do have a voice. To your point about speaking up, and we'll talk more about this later in the show, but Fred Korematsu was involved in so much activism after all of this happened. In 2003, he filed a friend of the court amicus brief with the Supreme Court for two cases before the Supreme Court on behalf of Muslim inmates being held at Guantanamo. And then in 2004, he filed a similar brief on behalf of an American Muslim man being held in solitary confinement in a U.S. military prison without a trial. When Trump passed the Muslim ban, so many Asian Americans were right there on the front lines. Do, do you know, Courtney, when Japanese Americans were forced into these internment camps, prisons, who was standing up for them at that time? Yeah, so we know uh, stories of, of allyship at the time, um, particularly, I know there was a lot, has been a lot um, old and, and remembered about the Quaker community standing up and um, speaking out against this. Uh, there, we have been individuals, um, individual stories, um, friends, neighbors, others who who did, you know, say something or or in their own way protested what was happening. Um, but unfortunately, there had been so much um, fomenting of fear and racial prejudice prior to um, our being brought into the war and prior to. Pearl Harbor, that, and uh, so there wasn't, uh, you know, a large outpouring. There weren't a number of people. There wasn't um, an organized effort against the forced removal and, and incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. Don, what would you like to add? Well, <clears throat> the, the rounding up of Japanese Americans during World War II was overwhelmingly a popular thing. And, uh, you know, Jim Crow had thoroughly infected California. When my uh, father was, and my parents were uh, first rounded up and put into Tanferan uh, Assembly Center. Uh, it's now a shopping center, but it, at that time it was a racetrack. Um, and 8,000 Bay Area Japanese Americans were forced in, into uh, Tanferan Assembly Center surrounded by barbed wire and machine gun towers. And they didn't miss the irony that the restrooms and drinking fountains at their holding facility were separated by signs reading white and colored, uh, indicative of how deeply um, the racial pathology had infected California. So the roundup of Japanese Americans kind of neatly fit in with that racial, into that racial construct. And your listeners might be surprised that. Um, then Earl Warren, uh, an ambitious attorney general running for governor, uh, stoked the racism of the fearful public, um, and among others led the charge that the Japanese Americans must go. He later, of course, in 1954, led a unanimous Supreme Court in overturning um, public uh, racial segregation in public schools. But then Earl Warren, the politician, uh, found it very ambitious, very beneficial uh, to stoke that racism. And it, it was so normal at that time, I think, that as to be beyond question. And so when Fred Korematsu was arrested, I mean, he was characterized as a Jap spy arrested in the Bay Area. And, uh, of course, people felt it was the roundup was necessary. And by the time the case uh, came up before the U.S. Supreme Court, six of the nine justices agreed, basically, that if a military commander tells us that these people are dangerous, then who are we to question the military? That's not the way that our court system is supposed to operate. The courts are supposed to be a co-equal branch of government. 
designed to be each to be a, a check and balance on the excesses of the other. Uh, the court is supposed to ask questions to demand proof, and essentially that never happened. They essentially took the court's word for it. And history repeats itself. You mentioned the, the Muslim ban of 2018 in Trump versus Hawaii. Uh, we like to think that um, the courts would have revisited Korematsu, and they made uh, some, you know, statements that, that Korematsu um, has long been repudiated in the court of history. But then the court basically essentially said if the government tells us that the ban makes the nation safer, then we're not going to question it. And so the dangerous precedent of Korematsu versus the United States got imported into a, a new vessel, uh, essentially, um, uh, in which um, the judicial branch did not uh, ask the questions as it should have and essentially repeated the mistake it made in, in 1944. So these things tend to repeat themselves, and so uh, I think it's our, it's our duty to be engaged civically to understand what's happening. And the reason why that's important is because our democracy is being tested at no time uh, more than uh, now in in our modern in modern times. And so uh, it really is important that we we pay attention. We're going to take a quick break. On today's Your Call, we are remembering the activism and courage of Fred Korematsu. Don Tamaki is a Bay Area-based attorney who is part of the team that overturned Fred Korematsu's 40-year conviction. While he was working on the case, Don's parents, who were forcibly incarcerated, were part of the movement to demand reparations for what they endured. Don Tamaki is also a board member of Stop Repeating History, an organization that highlights the importance of political engagement and how we can all take action against hate. He's also actively involved in the fight for reparations for African-Americans here in California. Courtney Pegler is Vice President and Director of Education at the Korematsu Institute. A descendant of Japanese Americans forced to leave the West Coast, Courtney is committed to ensuring that the shameful history of the World War II incarceration is not forgotten and that its lessons are applied to the fight for social justice for all. We'll be back after this. This is your call. I'm Rose Aguilar. Coming up tomorrow, we will find out how Boeing bought Washington. We'll talk about several investigations by The Lever showing that Boeing spent years lobbying to weaken safety regulations and a Trump administration agreement allowed Boeing to avoid criminal prosecution on fraud charges. We'll also be joined by former Boeing manager Ed Pearson, who says he would not fly a MAX airplane. So what will it take to hold the company accountable and ensure its planes are safe? We hope you can join us for that tomorrow. If you have a show idea or a guest idea, you can email your call at KALW.org. On today's Your Call, we are remembering the activism and courage of Fred Korematsu. If you'd like to join us, you can give us a call at 866-798-8255, 866-798-8255. If you or your family was impacted by the imprisonment of Japanese Americans during World War II. We'd love to hear your story. If you have any questions for our guests about internment, Fred Korematsu, and how it applies today, you can also email us, your call at KALW.org. Don Tamaki is a Bay Area-based attorney who is part of the team that overturned Fred Korematsu's 40-year conviction. Courtney Pegler is Vice President and Director of Education at the Korematsu Institute, and both of their families were forced into internment. We have an email from Philip who says, Japanese Americans lost their homes, farms, and businesses as a result of incarceration. Was any effort made to restore them to financial justice after it was determined that the government was wrong to displace them? Don, do you want to take that first? Well, the movement for reparations um, was a 20-year movement. began 1969-1970, so this was a long process. And it resulted in two bills. One was the 1980 bill, 
that established a commission, congressional commission, to study reparations. And as a result, 10 hearings were held nationwide. Almost 800 witnesses were heard. And that um, got national publicity. Uh, people simply didn't know that this had happened in the United States. When we were announcing the reopening of the Korematsu case, I called many news desks nationally and in the Bay Area. And uh, the news people simply did not know that this had happened. Um, the response, one response I got was, um, this involved Japanese prisoners of war, right? And I said, no, these are American citizens who were rounded up. And so um, the hearings of the 1980 bill went a long way to educate the country. And then in 1988, a money bill was proposed called the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, which ultimately passed and provided an apology and $20,000 in financial atonement for this wrong. Um, the amount of money that was, was paid out, and it only went to people who were living at the time uh, that the legislation passed, if they died in the camps or along the way before the the bill passed, um, their heirs got nothing. And so uh, about 80,000 uh, survivors um, received compensation, but it was not, um, you know, it wasn't compensation for what was actually lost. And that number rather what became a meaningful uh, symbolic amount. It was not like, here's a dollar and we're sorry. It was a meaningful amount, but it wasn't true um, compensation or restoration or of, of exactly what it was lost. But I will say it's one of the few times in modern American history where the government uh, acknowledged a great wrong and then put money behind it. So I, I think most Japanese Americans feel that the apology was meaningful. What, what are your thoughts on this, Courtney? I mean, when you go back to read articles, it, it, so much was lost. Businesses, um, family homes, years of building together, creating something. I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's really incredible, again, when you stop and think about what was lost. Absolutely. Not only what was lost for those who were sent to the camp, um, but for those that what was lost for generations since, um, you know, my mother was born shortly after the war ended and, um, she was, she grew up in the DC area. My grandparents didn't return to the West Coast after being in Utah. And, uh, although they joined the local Japanese American Citizens League, JACL, and participated in some cultural events and dances and things, so much culture was lost. Um, you know, her parents didn't teach her to speak Japanese, um, as often happened. Um, and there, there was just that continued loss that we saw in, in generations after. And it's um, pretty common, as I've learned, that like myself, um, I'm half Yonsei, fourth generation, um, it often has skipped this sort of generation. And, and those who were younger picked it up and said, wait a minute, we lost so much in this. We lost so much culture. Uh, we need to go back and learn more about what happened and learn more and reconnect with our roots and learn more, um, you know, about our Japanese-American history and culture. Um, I also wanted to just make the point from your last question before the break um, about speaking up against the incarceration camps. One of the motivations for those, for many, not to speak up against it was economic. Um, the Japanese American, there were many Japanese Americans here on the West Coast who were doing quite well in um, agricultural lines of business. And um, many uh, of the other farmers uh, saw that this was an opportunity for them to, um, you know, get rid of some of the competition. Um, and so the, the economic motivations on the other side of it and then the, you know, economic and cultural loss that we saw on the Japanese-American side was, was great. 
Well, well, to your point, I'm just looking at an article from Densho.org, D-E-N-S-H-O. There's really incredible photos in this piece. And here's one example. Yoshimi Matsura's family had to sell their vineyards for a total of $23 an acre instead of the $200 an acre they would have netted if they had been allowed to stay and harvest the grapes themselves. I mean, that is just one of so many examples. In, in addition to culture... Uh, because we live in this very capitalist system here in the U.S., generational wealth was also lost. Absolutely. Right? I mean, that's also very important, Courtney, be- because you talk about what a family builds when they come to this country, and then it's passed on to the next generation to ensure that that they have some wealth for future generations, and that was also lost. Yeah, my great-grandparents had a forest um, in Oakland, and they, um, I don't know uh, if they sold it or for how much or or what they they lost in the actual, you know, sale of that, Um, but they never went back into that business again. They had built up that business. The family was involved. My my grandmother drove the truck into San Francisco to get the flowers, and um, they lost all of that, and they, they never rebuilt a business of like like that um, after the camps, and, and my great grandparents didn't, um, you know, basically didn't go back into any sort of business after Topaz. Wow, you can't put a price tag on this, Don. I mean, there's so many aspects of this: losing the language, losing the culture, financial stability. There, there's just so much. Yeah, I mean, as I said, the the bill. Uh, providing reparations did not actually compensate for the losses because that number um, is enormous. Um, but uh, some financial atonement was made, and um, people did regain their dignity because of that. I don't want to uh, be dismissive of that reparations bill. It was uh, very, very important for the healing of our community. Um I'm now involved in, as you mentioned, the California Reparations Task Force that looked into and studied reparations uh, for African Americans. And while there is no equivalence between four years in a concentration camp and 400 years of oppression, uh, there are some lessons to be learned, including the one about how important healing is, uh, a reckoning and healing of this to begin the process of of ending um, a lot of the systems that have resulted in the disparities which we now see today. So <clears throat> I'm finding very relevant uh, many of the things that Japanese Americans went through, uh, again, uh, to what is relevant today, not only uh, threats to democracy that we're experiencing, but also um, the racial reckoning long overdue for African Americans. Don, you are the only non-black member on the nine-member task force for reparations in California. Why is this issue so important for you? And also, we did a show about reparations, and we heard from a lot of listeners who oppose reparations. Why do you think that's the case? I think that many people simply don't know what happened. They regard... um reparations is about slavery uh when it actually is not just slavery but everything else that followed slavery leading to today's outcomes and so uh today you don't have to convince japanese american groups to support uh reparations for african americans there are about uh literally 50 or 60 japanese american organizations that have endorsed uh reparations for um black people and a couple reasons for that. One, they understand um, the importance of healing and recognition, acknowledgement of the harm. But also, um, they experience directly when the racial animus uh, shifted slightly to uh, capture Japanese Americans in the crosshairs. And um, Japanese Americans got the support of African-American leaders in 1988 for our own reparations bill. And I think Japanese-Americans feel a sense of reciprocity. Um, 
uh, that justice also has to be done and is long overdue for black people. Um, I used to view uh, the incarceration of Japanese Americans, my parents, my family, as sort of uh, an example of anti-Asian hate. But after serving on the reparations task force and taking a deep dive in studying what happened, I now um, believe that the Japanese American experience, the incarceration of Japanese Americans, is merely a subchapter in a racial pathology that began long before um, Asian Americans arrived on these shores. And I think that story begins in 1619 when a value system was needed to prop up the institution of slavery, which lasted for 246 years and was followed by another 100 years of Jim Crow racial exclusion and then decade after decade of discrimination leading to to today's outcomes. And that sort of outcome was only made possible by a belief system uh, in which um, white lives were valued more than others and black and native lives were on the bottom and everybody else finds themselves somewhere in between. So when we look at California history in particular, um, uh, one of the striking things uh, that is revealed by the California Task Force's um, study is that what began as anti-black animism so easily shifted um, over time to target other disfavored groups at one time or another. I think the discrimination against Asian Americans has ebbed and flowed, but um, the one constant has been the discrimination and exclusion of certainly black and native people uh, in America. And so I, I think there's a, some sense of solidarity among Japanese Americans um, knowing that, you know, they have had firsthand experience with this and how um, uh, this has, you know, what started as anti-black animism uh, also put a target on, on their backs. And so um, I think there's a sense of, of connectivity on that. So, yeah, I was the only non-black person on the task force. Um, and um, I think I had to, you know, earn my way on this. Uh, but um, in the course of, of two years, um, I think we could see, you know, the parallels between not only uh, what African Americans have gone through, uh, but other groups as well. And in order to actually, you know, address uh, this ever-recycling racial pathology, uh, it's important to trace it back from, you know, whence it originated. Right. And it didn't originate in 1942. I think it originated long before, the, to the very beginnings of this country. Mm. And so um, there's a very important connection there. You know, hearing you talk about this, Don, you're, you're making me think about all the shows we've done over the years about violence against the Asian American community and Asian American hate. And I just wonder what you both think about where we are today, given that this issue has gotten so much attention. There's been so much research on it, major media and you know, talking about the importance of speaking out, about having community gatherings to talk about this. Um, I, I wonder what your thoughts are, Courtney. Where are we on this issue? I, I just searched Asian American violence. Not much has come up this year so far, uh, but a lot of stories from, from 2023. Yeah, I, I mean, I think where are we on this issue? Is unfortunately, we, we are still squarely in... Um, a problem of race in our country, and um, you know, as, as uh, Don said, it's really this tapestry over time, and all of these stories weave together, um, that, and they are continuing. Um, we might not see the same stories in the news that we saw, you know, during the pandemic in particular, um, and the, the rise in anti-Asian violence. Um, but it certainly hasn't been resolved. Um, unfortunately, um, it is still there. And um, that's really 
central to the work that we do at the Korematsu Institute, this idea of, of connectedness and telling our stories and um, intersectionality and solidarity among all of the communities that we have in the United States. That um, this is not just about Japanese Americans, this is not just about Asian Americans, this is about all Americans. And um, we feel that, you know, we, we advocate for ethnic studies, we advocate for um, informed civic participation, um, knowing the issues that are on the table, knowing, you know, who's running for, for what seats in government, and if you are able to vote, to go out and vote and, and use your voice. Um, and if you aren't able to vote, you're not of voting age, um, to learn about the issues and to speak out, um, and and not just on behalf of your own community, but um, others as well. And learning, you know, we, we talk about for students and, and others to learn about their own histories, their family histories, um, what it means to be an American. We can learn from each other, and um, we can appreciate each other's differences, and um treat each other with respect and that is really core to the work that we're doing in um, our education programs and creating curriculum and speaking to educators bringing together educators in workshops Um, we have a traveling exhibit that we're working on to get out across the country to try to bring these stories to communities that maybe don't know as much about the Japanese American incarceration history but also to connect it to the stories that are um, significant and relevant, meaningful to the local areas where we go and connect it to other communities um, and, you know, other stories throughout time. Are you finding that there is a hunger for this information at, at a time when, you know, the Republican, many in the Republican Party are banning books, um, attacking public education? Is there a hunger for information about Fred Korematsu and uh, Japanese-American history? There is, um, and we certainly see that among students and among educators. Um, and we, we've done a lot of work in, in that area. Um, Karen has been working with the National Council for Social Studies, which is a national organization, the largest organization of social studies educators. She's been working with them since 2012. Um, and so we, we have done a lot of work in education, and we've had a lot of, of people contact us and say, um, you know, we want to know more. We'd like to have a Fred Korematsu Day of Civil Liberties and the Constitution in our state. Um, or for even for those who are here in California, I've had a number of um, people contact us to say, we know that we have a Fred Korematsu Day of Civil Liberties and the Constitution in our state, but um, more people, we'd like for more people, more students in our schools, like our district, to know more about the day and what it represents. Um, so we're certainly hearing a lot. Um, you know, we, we have a lot of interest in uh, learning more about the story and, and having Karen come speak to different audiences. Um, she's in Boston this week and will be in Austin, Texas as well. Uh, Boston, there's a bill in committee to establish Fred Cornell today of civil liberties and the Constitution in perpetuity in the state. So we, we are certainly seeing the interest, and we're encouraging educators. We know that it's a, an incredibly hard time right now for educators and the um, pressures that they are feeling um, and, and getting to not teach about these issues and doing everything we can to support them in, in providing curriculum, providing resources, um, you know, helping those who do want to get the story out there to more students. Right. We're almost out of time. Don, what would you like to add, whether it's around the importance of solidarity or education and ensuring that this information gets out to as many students as possible? Well, to follow up on on what Courtney just said, I, I think there's an interest because this keeps recycling. Um, <clears throat> we'd like to, you know... Why isn't Korematsu and the incarceration of Japanese Americans just sort of an ancient curiosity? Uh, why is it so relevant today? And I think the answer is it's because it just keeps getting recycled. 
you know, we need only look at recent history, you know, to know this is true. When Asian Americans were blamed for the Chinese virus, when Mexicans were called uh, drug dealers and rapists, Muslims were labeled terrorists, when white supremacists declared that uh, Jews are poised to replace them, uh, we've seen when LGBTQ people were demonized, and certainly, uh, you know, when one more African American among countless others was killed during an encounter with law enforcement, and it just barely evoked a shrug because it was so normal. And uh, this is this is uh, a racial pathology that continues to sort of ebb and flow through our culture, and and until it is addressed, uh, it just keeps coming back in one form or another. You know, we remember in looking at the images coming out of January 6th of um, Confederate flag-toting insurrectionists smashing their way into the Capitol and hearkening back to a racial order that really should have ended with the Civil War. Uh, but instead, here we are again. Uh, so I think that's there, there is a hunger about why this is so. And I, I think Korematsu is a textbook lesson on the meaning of the Constitution. Constitution and uh, what it means, um, what you know, being an American really means. Who do we think we are as Americans? And so um, I think that makes uh, the Korematsu uh, case, you know, remain relevant and pertinent today. Don Tamaki is a Bay Area-based attorney who was part of the team that overturned Fred Korematsu's 40-year conviction. He's a board member of Stop Repeating History. Courtney Pegler is vice president and director of education at the Korematsu Institute. Both of their families were forcibly incarcerated. Don and Courtney, thank you so much for your work, and thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And we're going to continue our series on the incarceration of more than 125,000 Japanese Americans between 1942 and 1946. Nearly 70,000 were U.S. citizens. If you have a show idea or a guest idea on this series, you can email your call at KALW.org. Thanks to Sandra Holliday for producing today's show. Thanks to Kevin Vance for engineering our show. Thank you for joining us. I'm Rose Aguilar. It's your call.